Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Bovinghausen. Today is Thursday, August the 6th, 2020, and we are doing another episode on preparing for Sunday morning. This Sunday will be the ninth Sunday after Trinity. We are getting into the dog days of the summer season uh, in the church year, and they're kind of just kind of going on and on and on. But we're getting a lot of good lessons out of uh, these texts that we've had. They're a little tough, but they make us think. They stretch our understanding of God's Word, and they really challenge us as Christians. There's a lot of issues of sanctification, uh, a lot of... Um, need for this proper distinction between law and gospel. But we're going to get into some of those things uh, today because our text is particularly difficult from the gospel um, text for today. But before we get into all that, let's set the tone with uh, prayer. And we'll pray the uh, collect for the day for this coming Sunday. So let us pray. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that they may obtain their petitions. Make them to ask such things as shall please you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Apologize a little bit for the uh, stuttering there, the little gaps, uh, disfluencies I have uh, with my speech impediment, but it's part of the game. It's the certain affliction that God has bestowed upon me, and it is all for His glory that He has done so. So um, that is something that's interesting, though, is that we hear in that collect, let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that they may obtain their positions, make them to uh, and that they may p- obtain their petitions, make them to ask such things as shall please you. So it makes me think of um, my specific uh, issue of uh, speech with a stutter. Uh, it humbles me. It objectively humbles me uh, and makes it to where um, I, it really takes away my... Um, <laughs> my confidence in some ways, uh, and really forces me uh, in the temptation of despair to really rely on God's mercy through all things, uh, especially when I'm speaking, especially when I'm preaching, too, um, that uh, I'm not always as quick uh, in speech, uh, but that's, always, that, that's, that's not always a bad thing. It's, it's sometimes a blessing. It makes me really slow down and think. So we're going to get into some of these things about relying on God's mercy. Uh, we're going to try and, and um, understanding uh, what it means to be humbled uh, in God's sight uh, and a lot of other things. But we're going to try and keep this a little bit shorter uh, this week like we did last week. Keep it, try, try to keep it really at 30 minutes. So to do that, we're going to dive right in. So the gospel, which we have been seeing since we've started this, that 
uh, in the one-year lectionary, which we are on here at Resurrection, um, the one-year historic lectionary, uh, it, everything, all the readings go to support what's going on in the gospel. So in the gospel text, we have a doozy here. It's a little tough one. Um, so we have uh, the gospel is from St. Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So it, so it says, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may... People may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of, of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. So we see here, we got a tough one. It's a doozy. It's a tough uh, text. So we see this parable, right? And um, just so we're clear, we, we have parables from Jesus all the time. Uh, but what are parables? We have looked at different parables like uh, the prodigal son and such things, uh, such uh, things about that. Uh, but we see what are the purpose of parables. And if, and if we go to Mark chapter 4, which you can hear me turning in my Bible, hopefully. Um, you can hear Mark chapter 4, I think it's verses 11 and 12, where, um, yeah, 
just as some context, context, this is after Jesus tells the parable of the sower in Mark's gospel. And it says, uh, starting at verse 10, chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 10 in Mark, uh, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So we have probably, you've probably heard the definition of a parable being, you know, um, uh, a heavenly reality in, in, hum, in earthly language or in human language, uh, there's, there's an earthly reality, something like that. It's, that's, that's not quite what's going on. Uh, this, these speaking in parables really is a covering up, um, a covering up of the uh, kingdom of God. It's, it's a way to obscure the truths of the kingdom of God. And, and if you want to see what that looks like, I mean, take any parable uh, and look and see what the world sees. How does the world see a parable? You do a parable of um, the prodigal son, and you see that the world will see it as, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's great forgiveness, and that's, you know, we should just forgive, uh, and we should, um, you know, do like the Father does and just accept everybody, right, regardless of what they've done. And, and you know, to some degree, that's has some merit to it, but um, in a lot of ways, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Uh, the um, the father and the prod- and the prodigal son is going against all conventional wisdom. It do- it doesn't really work out in the long run when you have children that are disobedient and they say, "I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now," and you go ahead and do that. You you know, it doesn't turn out so well, but. To use a much more plain example, look at the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan, and you see that the world puts that in the lens of law, right? They try and turn some sort they they try and turn that story into some sort of um, some sort of um, uh, excuse me, there's my disfluency again. They turn that into some sort of Um, ethic by which to live their lives, which means, you know, love your neighbor, do good to them, these sorts of things, but they turn it into a law. And the parables are supposed to be revealing the kingdom of God. And, you know, in some sense, we have enough law in the world. The law is manifest throughout the world because we see the effects of sin, right? We see that there is a hierarchy in nature, there are things out there, and but it's harsh and, and, and it's unforgiving. So why would we need a parable to tell us something that we already know, that love is good and that um, you know we have the law written on our hearts? So why would we need a parable to tell us something that we kind of already know, which is you know do good to people or you know quid pro quo? If you're nice to people, they'll be nice to you. This sort of thing like that. But we see here that these parables reveal the truth about the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. That if you look at the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan, that's not about 
what we are supposed to do to each other so much as it is about what Christ does for us. It is used in a way to trap us to show that we don't do these things, right? That we do not do what the Good Samaritan does. And in the same way, we have to kind of add that lens that, you know, um, that to the world they've been given parables so that seeing they may not perceive, you know, and, and hearing they may not hear, that this, it's, it's been obscured. So when the world looks at this, this text, they see, they don't really know what to do with it. I mean, we, we as Christians might barely know what to do with it, but you look at this and you see that it's kind of uh, like an Aesop's fable or some sort of trickery or some sort of thing, but you're, one, you're left wondering, what is the moral of this story? This guy, this, um, this, it says the dishonest manager, but really it's better to say the unjust steward. That's the more uh, traditional reading of it, and that's actually more closely aligned to the Greek, that the unjust steward somehow gets away with things and he's rewarded for um, the unjust actions, the shrewdness of his uh, his actions, right? But we see here that, uh, just, just to kind of give a, a broad overview of what happens in this parable, the unjust steward is um, given a bad account and the, uh, the landowner um, fires him. But he all, right away we see the mercy of the landowner because the landowner, uh, the rich man, um, he had charges brought to him and according to the law, the rich man could have taken his dishonest or his unjust steward and he could have thrown him out and shamed him, humiliated him. He would have been well within the law to do these things, but he shows mercy to him in some regard, right? And this is where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would he do that? I mean, nowadays you see um, that anybody who gets fired from a job or even if they resign and they leave on good terms, they're still, they're still escorted out of the building by security, right? Lest they... <laughs> lest they act out their anger in some way on the way out. Um, so this rich man is acting contrary to conventional wisdom, right? It doesn't make sense to us that he would just let him kind of say, turn in your accounts, right? Uh, for you can no longer be my manager. And instead of just saying, you know, stay there, I'll get somebody else to take care of it. He allows him to do this. And then the manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so then he starts calling people and we, you know, more than just these two that are given here as examples, he probably calls a lot of people together and he reduces their pay or he reduces what they owe. That's right. He reduces what they owe to the landowner, the rich man. And uh, he's doing this so that maybe he could be welcomed into their house for um, being kind to them. But the thing is, is that uh, at, at an outward glance, we may see this as some trickery and then counterintuitively again, after he, after all this is said and done... The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, 
right? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he's kind of put, in some ways, it sounds like if you're on the outside looking in, you might see this as the the unjust steward gets one over on the rich man. And the rich man has to obey, has to abide with what has been done in his name and according to his books and everything like that, because in some ways he's compelled to do this. Yet what's interesting about it is that behind the scenes is the mercy of the rich man. And that's what, what the world doesn't readily see. The world sees this as, oh, he got one over on him. He really got him on that one. But what is and ought to be highlighted for us to, um, for us as Christians is that underlying this is the generous the almost unjust generosity of the rich man because um, he already has this character about him because the unjust steward knows that he can get away with this on some level because he knows the character of the rich man. And when he goes to all the different people who owe money, they don't object. They go along with it because on some level they understand that that is the character of the rich man as well, that they don't know him as someone who's more concerned with justice rather than mercy, right? That this is well within his character. They go along with it. Nothing sounds fishy to them. I mean, that's how it ought to be seen, that in some ways the rich man is more concerned with mercy than with justice, And in the same way, we ought to see ourselves within this to show that uh, the only thing that the unjust steward can do when he's caught red-handed, you know, he's outright called out a scoundrel. He doesn't deny it. He confesses it freely by his actions of not fighting it, right? He He doesn't fight the charge. He goes along with it. But... The only thing he has left to do is what? Is throw himself on the mercy of the rich man. And in the same way, we are called sinners. We are called scoundrels and rebels to God. And we are called to account, and rightfully, we should not deny it. We confess it freely and say, Lord, I have sinned. I'm throwing myself on your mercy. And that's what this, you know, that's that's what this dishonest steward or this um, unjust steward does. He throws himself on the mercy of the of of the rich man, and the character of the rich man for mercy proves true. That's the that's the real point of this, um, and that's why the master commended the dishonest or not the dishonest manager. It's really the unjust steward or the steward of unrighteousness, right? It's kind of interesting play on words there in the Greek, the ambiguity of it all. But he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Uh, And then we get verse 9 that is not actually part of the parable, right? It's kind of a transition marking onto the next, uh, you know, verses 10 through 13, where... uh, Verse 9 says, uh, Jesus says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. 
Now, this is one of those things that it's, what do, what does this mean? Do we bribe people for their friendship? Um, really what it is, is it's a transition in that last part there, verses 10 through 10 through 13, where we see one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you tr- entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There is this understanding, it's, it's ending on this proclamation of law that says money should be put to use for the good of the neighbor, right? And however faithful you are with your finances, with money, uh, gives you gives people and gives you an understanding of how faithful you are with true riches, that is the gospel, right? And then we see um, how faithful you are with uh, how faithful you are with um, the gospel will be seen in how faithful you are with money and your other possessions, your mammon, as it were. And um, then in verse 13 is what's really at stake, right? You cannot serve two masters. That while on one hand you may think that there are all these other gods out there, lowercase g, you know, and and there are, but really it's it's very interesting, you know, you cannot serve God and money. And let me actually get out my Greek for this because it's kind of interesting if it actually says this. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. It shows how shows how much I know off the top of my head, you know, but pastors aren't infallible here. So it's verse 13. Yeah, that's right. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon, uh, you know, money is what's translated there, but mammon is possessions, right? It's what is, uh, it's, it's what is our uh, material wealth, right? That there is a difference in serving the one true God, understanding the mercy shown to you through our Lord in Jesus Christ. And there's another one in putting all of your fear, love, and trust in your possessions, in money, in strength, in uh, your intellect, in, um, I think, in your house, your car, your job, all these other material uh pieces of wealth. You can't serve both of these things, but serve the one true God. And, and, and with that, you use your possessions as well. This is all there to show just how much we need a savior. It's law. It's heavy law uh, because it, it does nothing but convict us, right? And uh, within our economy, the 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 economy of man this is hard to bear because if you hear this then you say well that doesn't make sense the rich man did that he was so merciful but this parable makes sense in the economy of salvation in god's economy for some reason his mercy his desire for mercy outweighs justice in that 
those who were rebels, those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, those who were the enemies of God, children of wrath, he paid the price for in sending his son to die for us, right? That doesn't make sense in the economy of man. Because in the economy of man, if you go around forgiving debts, you're not going to stay in business long. But for God, he forgives the debts of those who believe that Christ has died for them and forgives them all their sins. That's just a very cursory reading of this. There's a lot here. I'm not going to go into it. I'm already kind of running low on time. But uh, we're going to go to the Old Testament text for this Sunday, which is 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 26 through 34. I'll read that real quick. This is David here in a song that he sang uh, towards the end of his life. Uh, David says, with the, merciful, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We see here that at the beginning, you know, um, David says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. It's, it's not that the inherent character of men shows, de- determines how God acts towards these people, that in order for God to be merciful to you, you must be merciful. That's not how this works. If that were true, then God would never be merciful to us because we are not merciful in and of ourselves. And we are not blameless in ourselves, right? And um, we are not purified. All these things going down the list, we are not merciful. We are not blameless. We are not purified. We are not humble. Um, But we are crooked in and of ourselves. And the only way that we can not be that way is by God's grace and mercy, right? We see uh, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him, right? And then we see this God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. See, David is speaking this, but you know what? David wasn't blameless. He was a, he was a scoundrel, right? He, uh, I mean, <laughs> he's known probably the most next to his uh, defeat of Goliath, he's probably known best for his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite, right? That he's known of the he's known as these things, but he wasn't he didn't know about it's it's kind of interesting. Um he says, This God, his way is perfect, the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And and you know, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down, that David was not humble objectively until Nathan came and preached the word to him of uh, condemnation 
rightfully that he was the man who had who had uh, stolen and killed, right? He stole Uriah's wife and then he killed Uriah for that wife. And he was humbled by the objective word of God. And he was objectively humbled to show that he was uh, weak, that he in and of himself is nothing. That's kind of why I started at the beginning saying, you know, my stutter is something that objectively weakens me and reminds me that I am not necessarily humble because I'm so virtuous or something like that, but because there's this thing that God has laid upon me that humbles me objectively. (laughs) And people may say, oh, it's no big deal. We don't mind the stutter. But the thing is, is that it bothers me so badly because uh, it it is just the way that God has chosen to um, have me bear a cross with a thorn in my side to remember that I am a sinner and to remember that God's grace is enough, that all I can do is rest on his mercy and grace, right? And that is what happens, um, you know, that God makes our way blameless. We cannot do it. We cannot love in the way that God wants us to. Anyone who says that we can, they're lying to you. Um, We can only love as God loves us through Jesus Christ. It is because of Christ that we can now love as he intended us to. And even then, it's imperfect, right? It's imperfect, and it's tainted. And that's another thing our gospel teaches us, that our works are tainted and that it's imperfect, that no matter how good you may think your, your good works are, they are imperfect. They're tainted with sin, and the only thing you have left to do is say, we are unworthy servants, we only did what was asked of us, right? And we throw ourselves on the mercy of God in the same way that the unjust uh, steward did. Okay, so we're, we're almost out of time here. I'm going a little bit over, but I want to get through the epistle because it's actually a good one. I mean, it's all good, you know. But uh, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 13, where St. Paul writes, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we see here that there's apostolic admonition, uh, this apostolic... um, 
warning, right? That the people of old in the Old Testament, that uh, especially in the uh, the wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years, that's what uh, Paul is referencing here. They are examples for us that we might desire that we might not desire. Um, evil as they did, that we must not indulge in the things that they did, lest we be struck down. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, that none of us stand on our own power, uh, even in faith. You know, people might say, oh, they have such a strong faith. Well, your faith is only as strong as the thing that it's holding on to, right? Faith has to have an object. Faith clings to something. And your faith, whether, you know, if it's in Christ, it is holding on to the only true and sure thing in this world and in the world to come. But if we hold on to our own strength, you know, I have such a strong will. I did this. I chose Christ. I believe, uh, and 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 it's it's because I saw the light, and I am the one who made the decision for Christ. That is wrong. <laughs> it's it's wrongheaded to think that way because Paul says, Saint Paul says. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think so highly of yourself that you are the one who is really pulling the strings on things, right? That you are the one who uh, really calls the shots. Remember our collect, right? Uh, Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that they may obtain their petitions. Make them to ask such things as shall please you. This is this is praying that God be the primary actor, even in our prayers, right? That um, that our petitions would be according to His will, revealed in His Word, right? that we would ask God to make us to ask such things as should please him, right? That, that God is the one who calls us to these things. And he says, you know, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Your struggles with um, sexual lusts, with um, passions of the flesh, whether that be money or food or anything, uh, you know, social justice or something like that. Uh, racial justice now, I think, is the cause du jour um, amongst people. And, you know, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, including your pride, right? And to that degree, every, this reminds us that everybody struggles with something. Everybody struggles with some sort of temptation. Everybody struggles with some sort of affliction. Um but we see that God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's not that God will take away the temptation, but He provides the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Endurance is the key patience and long-suffering in the face of sin. That is a theology of the cross, right? That 
people, when they quote this, they stop too short. They say, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. They always emphasize that, your ability. But what this really is, finish it out. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what that is? That's law. Because if and when you fall into temptation, which we are wont to do in various ways, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Remember that. We have no one to blame but ourselves because God provides the way of escape through Jesus Christ. But when we fall, it's all our fault. And the only thing we can do, again, is to turn and throw ourselves on the mercy of God, for he is merciful through Jesus Christ. Right? Okay. I think that's pretty good for today. We went a little bit over, but hey, you know what? Hopefully it was worth it. And hopefully you got some things out of this, some things to think about. If y'all have any questions about these texts, you need some clarification, please do not hesitate to uh, reach out to us, reach out to me. You can go to our website, resurrectionfbg.org. You can go to our Facebook page. Um, Just make sure I got it right here. Uh, Resurrection... Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg. If you just search for that, it should come up. Let me see if I can find it real quick for y'all. Yeah, Resurrection Lutheran Church. Type that in. Look for the one that's in Fredericksburg. That's us. You can leave a comment. You can reach out to me specifically. You can send us a message through Facebook. You can do all these sorts of things. Y'all usually, if you're pretty savvy, you can get in touch with us. You know how to do that. Uh, You can get in touch with me through our website um, where my contact info is there, my email and things like that. Um, Anyways, God's peace be with you. God's blessings on your preparations for Sunday. God's blessings on your worship um, this Sunday as well. And uh, we look forward to uh, doing this again next week. God's peace.